Welcome to the Startup Field Guide, an unusual ventures podcast where we learn from the successful startup leaders of today how their companies truly found product market fit. I'm your host, Sandhya, and in every episode, I'll dive into a different aspect of early stage company building with our guests. Let's go. So in today's episode, our guest is a veteran of the cybersecurity industry, having led three successful companies, the latest of which is Arctic Wolf Networks. Last valued at about $6 billion, AWN is the leader in the cybersecurity category known as MDR, which is Managed Detection and Response, which it offers as a service. And what makes the story really special is that the company had a pretty rough first five to six years and then finally hit a tipping point after which the growth of the business has been just phenomenal. You can compare it to very few other enterprise software companies in history to be growing so fast at this scale. So welcome to our podcast, the founder of Arctic Wolf, Brian Nesmith. Brian, please say hi. Uh, Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And another reason this episode is special is I have a co-host today who's my partner and the founder of Unusual Ventures, John Riones. John, say hello. Hi, Sandia. So John actually led the first venture investment in Arctic Wolf 10 years ago, which was a $7.5 million round just as Brian started this company. So it's this interview is going to be really epic. It's very special to have both of you here together. So going back to that moment in 2012, Brian, maybe you can kick us off by sharing a bit about like what was happening when you decided to start Arctic Wolf Networks. Uh, What was going on in your mind? You have done this a couple of times before. You know how hard it is. What was the opportunity? What got you excited? Sure. So if we... We have to kind of rewind prior to the official start date, like you often do in these things. They don't come into existence out of nowhere. They come from a set of ideas. Uh, I had ostensibly retired. Uh, I actually knew John. We joined a small company that had its own struggles, and so it got to go John through that experience really well. Served me well, I think, when we talk about the fundraising, because that was a big part of the motivation for me, having worked with a venture company that especially in a challenging dynamic, how do they behave? What do they do? And it was a real strong proof point for me that the partner you get in with matters a lot, and especially when times can get difficult. I got bored. No other way of putting it. I got retired. I got bored. Uh, It's uh, called up my co-founder, Kim, uh, Kim Tremblay, who's uh, based in uh, Waterloo, Ontario. And Hey, how's how's things going post- you know, my previous company and saying we worked together at the previous company he says, well, I'm bored too. And that's a bad formula Too bored, you know, kind of entrepreneurial folks, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to jump in and do something. And so we, we uh, got together at her, uh, over her kitchen counter in, in Waterloo and brainstorm a half dozen different ideas. Uh, five of the six would have made it. One would have been a complete abysmal failure, <laughs> but, and we decided to focus on this one, uh, Mostly because I, I wasn't as excited about starting a company that was going to be get acquired. Not to say that we couldn't have got acquired, but it wasn't going to be a feature that had to be a part of a bigger company. And so I wanted to be something that was a little more category defining. Uh, didn't have to be category defining, but I thought that could be sustained and grow into a truly large entity. And uh, maybe that 
created some later challenges for us in what we were doing, but uh, that was that was really the start of everything there. And what was kind of the market insight? What were you looking? We decided to start a company. What were you looking for in terms of an actual problem to chase and why? So the, the actual space we focused, focused on, people today call it MDR, that managed detection response. I, I look at it as like neighborhood watch for your IT infrastructure. So it's collecting data from the environment, and understanding when things are not doing what they should be doing. Uh, we called it continuous monitoring at the time. The essence of the idea came from my prior company, uh, Bluecoat. Bluecoat, the uh, security solution, produced really voluminous logs, like massive log data, huge wealth of information in that data. We found a very rare that a customer was able to understand what that data was telling them. And so that was the kernel of the idea. If you look across everything that's in your environment, you know, your endpoints, your servers, your security devices, your firewalls, every one of them is producing data. There's a huge amount of wealth in that data mixed with a massive amount of noise. Uh, and so the thought process was we could build a solution that would get through all that and draw out the specific uh, items that are relevant to the end customer. Um, and, you know, and that we called it continuous monitoring and evolved over several iterations through different names into what we're doing. But that was the original insight and the, the thought process of what we wanted to build. And John, as an investor, what was uh, exciting about the problem area Brian wanted to focus on? What piqued your attention? Well, it actually all started with Brian. You know, Brian and I, as he had said, we worked on a board together. I had recruited him uh, to, a, to an early stage company and uh, had worked with him through multiple rounds of funding and unfortunately not a great exit. I don't know if Brian knows this, but when I was in business school at Stanford, we actually studied cash flow or blue coat. So I remember him as the protagonist in that case. And, you know, my mentor, Andy Ratcliffe and Brian worked together. Uh, Andy as an investor and Brian, Brian as a CEO. So we, we had that history. And then Brian is the proud father of daughters like myself and also a lover of uh, soccer. So we had hit it off both on a professional and a, a personal level. So when he came to me, uh, I was already positively inclined about anything that he was going to do. Although I did think he was retired. So I was a bit surprised uh, when he came, but he made this very compelling argument as the good founders do about why the industry was changing, why there was a need for what Arctic Wolf would inevitably become. And it felt like he had what we call that proprietary insight. He understood the market and how the world was evolving. And he saw the opportunity uniquely because of his experience. So the combination of those two things, I was really excited to work with Brian again. Well, so... Going back to 2012, you've raised your seed round from John. And then I think very soon after, you actually also did a preemptive A, which almost feels like you're back in 2021. But, <laughs> but you know, you did this way, way back before it was the norm. You had a preemptive A round uh, led by Redpoint. What was happening on the product side? Like, you know, as a repeat founder, like how did you approach developing the product, testing the hypothesis? What was the product market fit journey for Arctic Wolf? Yeah, so just a slight correction there. So the uh, Lightspeed was the A round with John, and then the B round was with Redpoint. Uh, uh, it was a fairly simple process. Redpoint had missed out on the A round. They did not get selected, and, and the person that was leading that 
just wanted to get into the deal. So he came to me uh, and we weren't actually trying to raise money at that time. We just added the money at that point in time. Uh, that being said, a lot of this is when you, you have an idea of a company, you have an idea of you think somebody's going to want, uh, you don't actually know if it's true. Like, and you don't really know if it's true until you go out and try to get somebody to pay money to, to buy it from you. And so that's, that to me, uh, I, you know, I started with a group of engineers. I was the only non-engineer, even though I have an engineering degree. I, was, I haven't really practiced engineering, so I no longer can qualify as an engineer in the truest sense of the word. Uh, I spent most of that first year, year and a half selling early, like starting to think about, you know, who's the target customer, what's that profile look like, uh, and a realization, especially for a B2B business, uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of direct interaction with the customer, and so you've got to do a bunch of things to kind of, you know, help you figure out how you're going to get that product market fit. One of the things that I think is a a common misnomer is, I think it's a question that comes all the time, how do you know you have product market fit? And I don't think that's actually the best question. I think what's really important is, what is the process? How are you going to go about learning how you're going to get product market fit? Because product market fit is, is you know, hard work, it's intelligence, it's luck. You can't control everything there. Uh, but the process you go through in figuring out how to get a product market fit for a B2B company, I think is something that can be done and, and you can't dictate the outcome, but you can dictate the process. And so could you walk us through like what that process felt like at Arctic Wolf? Sure. In, in its simplest form, and, and you see this illustrated, you know, if you go talk about people doing fundraising, say, what's your elevator pitch? I don't think that's good enough. So the way you think about it is, is you get five seconds to get somebody to listen for 15 seconds. And in 15 seconds to get a minute and a minute actually ask for a meeting to talk about what you do. So those three sessions and ultimately the pitch that you're going to give them to get them to buy the product, those have to be scripted. And you don't have to wait to have the product that you want to sell to do those scripts. You can go test them and start learning and iterating. Uh, and I actually wrote those scripts out early, early on. I was the only one doing that. I was the sales development rep, the SDR. I was the SDR that would give them the 15-second pitch. Uh, I was the one that would do the one-minute pitch. And then I did an interesting thing. I created an alter ego early, early on that was not me as the CEO, but me as a salesperson. I called that person Brian Robinson. And, um, and I, was, I was Brian Robinson doing the sales pitch because it's, it's for some customers, you get a different dynamic when it's the CEO selling. But when it's this sales guy, and so, you know, I would do that pitch and, and do it as Brian Robinson. And... It also afforded me, if people would ask for discounts or they'd want help, I could say, well, you know, I got to go talk to the CEO and we'll see what he can do. And I did get caught once. I fessed up immediately, um, but uh, it happens. But it also, it, it kind of put in me that idea that I'm not the CEO selling right now. What does that pitch got to look like? It's the story itself, not my personality or not my title is not going to get me the meeting. And wrote those scripts, did them myself before I hired anybody in sales many, many times, iterated on them. And, and even after I started hiring people into those specific positions, still participated fairly actively in selling right along with those people and listening to them. But I also reserved, uh, even as we're still learning that product market fit with, as I hired people, I reserved about 20% of the capacity for an alternate script. So in, and then I would hold, once a quarter, I'd hold a free day. Everybody can try their own script and tell me what worked. It can't be what we do now. And 
just trying to find ways to iterate and create that rapid learning dynamic. I, I think I articulate to people, you can't dictate the outcome, you're going to get product market fit. You're not guaranteed to get it. But what you can do is control the process and be as efficient as possible about what doesn't work. And it can be frustrating and painful because I guarantee you anybody that does this, you will get a lot more about what doesn't work than what does work. You may go through hundreds of iteration of what doesn't work until you find what does work. One of the things about Brian that was so compelling was his perspective on the market, but at the same time, his willingness to continue to try different scripts, as he called them, right? So he, he and Kim had this fundamental insight about the security market being broken in the sense that it was most companies were cobbling together a bunch of point products and then building a security operations center to try to really get to the root cause of a lot of the most recent you know, attacks. And he just saw that because he had been one of those point product vendors. And he saw the opportunity to build a, a platform that brought a lot of that data together. But how to articulate that, right? How to, to compel a customer about the value proposition when they were accustomed to buying something else, more of a point product, it took time. It took a lot of time. And it was a creative process that's very difficult difficult to put a schedule to but he would always come to us as investors with these different these different scripts right these different positioning statements these different narratives as he was working his way through the process and as he said there's no guarantee that the outcome is a success but he knew that by following a process and continuing to iterate and iterate and iterate he, he was he was maximizing his probability of finding it makes sense and, and Brian, I'm curious, like, how do you, what were the reactions you looked for in a pitch to say, oh, this meeting went very well. I think my, my buyer is like leaning in hard versus they said nice things, but actually that meeting was a complete dud. Like, could you share examples of how you built your own gauge? Well, it, so the five second pitch, did you get a 15 second pitch? I actually literally tracked that. And then the 15 second, do I get a minute? And I would understand, no, they hung up after 15 seconds. Okay, well, something in the 5 or 15 didn't work. Uh, and then sometimes I'd, I'd get to the minute pitch and I'd say, hey, could you take a 15-minute meeting and I'll give you a more thorough overview? They'd say, no. You know, they kind of, nah, they're being polite. And I'd say, hey, could you share, could you for a minute here share to me why not? Like, well, tell me what you didn't like or what didn't resonate with you. And 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 I would encourage them because what I would do is I'd criticize myself. I think you didn't like this because then that opens the door because people are naturally generally polite. They, they won't tell you why they don't want to do it. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, it, it's very obvious. Your five-second pitch gets you the majority of the time of 15 seconds. Your 15 gets you the minute. and Your minute gets you the, the, the full meeting. Even for the full meeting, that was scripted and pitched. And, you know, we would try to get customers to... Uh, we, we did something a little different in a typical, generally in, in an enterprise level product, people want to do a POC. I didn't want to do POCs. So what we would do is we would get customers to buy the first month's service. And so we, we did not do POCs. It's like, I'm not going to do a POC. This is worth it to you. Uh, and I'll put you on a month to month subscription. And, and so pay for the first month. And if you're not willing to pay for the first month, then my guess is the POC would have been a waste of our time. So it's every step of the way asking for the order, you know, five seconds. Can you give me 15? 15, can you give me a minute? Minute, can you give me that, you know, 15-minute meeting? And in that 15-minute meeting, are you ready to buy it? 
you know, because I'll only charge you a month. And if you don't like it, you can cancel after a month and you can move on. And and it's hard. I think as an entrepreneur, you don't like rejection, you know, and so, you know, it's your little baby that you're building and, you know, they, they run it for a month and they say, yeah, it wasn't worth it to me. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons. You may have the basic idea, right? But I guarantee every entrepreneur has to iterate on even the basic idea to really turn it into something that's truly going to be successful. What were some of those iterations like that, you know, do you remember kind of the very first original form of the idea and then how you guys evolved it based on the feedback? It was mostly, I say, marketing pitches, how we talked about it. We did continuous monitoring. We had SOC as a service. We had SIM as a service. We had, uh, we even had this term fire break, which I think was kind of the reaching the pinnacle of, of, uh, my team getting frustrated with me. <laughs> so, it, uh, you know, so it's mostly, I'd say, iterations on, on that piece. Ultimately, all that aside, by focusing on the process and measuring it, you get to reward yourself that I've, I've learned things. I've, I've Things that I'm improving the product, things that I'm improving how I talk about things here. We didn't really achieve product market fit. And I think this is a lesson for people is it's not always about your iterations. Sometimes the market just has to come your way. And for us, you know, five and a half years into it, uh, if, you know, our audience might remember, but the big ransomware events that occurred with the UK hospitals changed the dynamic in our space. Because prior to that, yeah, hackers get into your network, they steal your stuff. So what? It wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah, they say it was a big deal, but they didn't really care about it. When those ransomware events returned those hospitals to the dark ages, all of a sudden everybody woke up and said, hey, a hacker could bring down my entire infrastructure. And so it, it, everything shifted. You could just feel the wind when you talk to people. They're like, oh, somebody that would watch and tell me when that's about to happen and warn me and correct me. And then they just start taking stuff away from you. They can't stop you. They're, they're like, yeah, let's do the meeting. Yes, let's take the next call. Let me get my other team on the phone, all those sorts of kind of signals that tell you on that. And those are the indicators of it. But ultimately, the real indicator is people buy it and they keep it installed. That, that tells you more than anything. And this was like 2017, 18, right? About five, six years after um, Arctic Wolf was born. So what, were, what was that kind of, you know, wandering through the wilderness process like? Like what, what did the board conversation sound like when you went back and said, no, we are still figuring it out? We didn't get, this is what made it especially frustrating. It was not that there was no success. So it's like we're getting some traction. And I, I joke even today, you know, we've been doubling for almost 10 years. And so every year we're getting growth. It's just not in the traditional model. It wasn't like three times, three times, two times, two times. It's been, you know, 2x, 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 2x. And now at the size we're getting, the 2x's start to matter. Uh, and so not every company grows the same way. And I, I think that a couple things. One, I have the experience where I've lived it and I was comfortable being fully transparent, like where we screwed up, where we made mistakes, where that was a waste of money. Uh, and okay, well, that wasn't a waste of money, but I did learn something, you know, and, and moved on from that. And that's the benefit of experience. But I think even a, a young entrepreneur, there's, there's no reason not to be transparent. It's, you'll just benefit measurably by that, just even for your own psyche, that you're not trying to maintain two sets of books in your heads about what you told your investors versus what's actually happening for whatever reason. And, and we just, you know, I think that coupled with, uh, I, I saw enough proof points in the individual 
not in the overall market, but in the individual where people did rip it out of my hands. And I, I believe that eventually the market would come about. I'd be you know, misleading to tell you that I knew it was going to be the ransomware event that was going to cause that, but I knew something would happen in our space that would, that would trigger that kind of uh, event to take place. And so that transparency and, and then also just you know, sharing the anecdotal information about when it was successful and, and what made it successful and as proof points that this is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, Brian, you can't under, understate that, I think, for our audience, right? The, the fact that Brian was brutally honest and brutally transparent, it actually gave us confidence in him, right, to continue, to, to persevere. You know, I think way too often VCs believe in this mythical, well, it's supposed to triple, it's supposed to triple, and then double, double. But it's an artificial growth rate that you're putting on a startup. And while we'd all love to see those happen, it's unrealistic, especially when you're creating a new category, that that company is going to grow according to some spreadsheet exercise. And so I think what happens is rounds happen, valuations go up, and all of a sudden people with hindsight say, oh, we're supposed to triple, triple, double, double. And when they don't, they kind of panic. And in this case, because Brian was so transparent and, and so truthful about the struggles uh, and you know, the moderate successes, we, we continue to have belief, I certainly did, in him and believing that eventually the market would come around if we could really figure out how to position and get the narrative right. And I think that was, that was true. He, he's underselling his ability to continue to do that. But it also was there was a macroeconomic shift in people's thinking. And sometimes it's just about being around, surviving until that happens and, ha and having the antidote you know, in this case, that people really recognize now that they needed. Makes sense. And Brian, on the, uh, you know, very important question, especially in this environment, how did you think about, like, your burn and your team while you were kind of going through this, uh, you know, more of the wilderness path, right? Like the big tipping point hasn't happened yet. You can see that. How did you think about, you know, planning your team expansion uh, accordingly? And what did your team look like, uh, you know, in the, you know, three, maybe two or three years in? Well, for the first two, two and a half years, it was me and a bunch of engineers. So I was selling and marketing and doing all the pieces. Uh, my marketing skills aren't great. My design <laughs> skills aren't great. But, but what I, you know, was comfortable doing is selling and and doing the, the pitch and and I didn't think I needed a you know something too fancy to articulate the value proposition to the customer so uh, and now as it started to iterate and we started getting a little bit of traction and we started adding resources uh, paying attention to the metrics like you know having five of something are you learning any better or any faster than having two of something if two of something is you're learning fast enough then don't add more till you really prove a formula uh, Although we've raised a lot of money, you know, over the history through the early, you know, through all the way up even the D round, we had not raised that much money. We made it last a good six, six and a half years. Uh, and it's really on the last couple rounds did the fundraising, you know, increase and the volumes increase. Uh, uh, and so it's just being measured and being honest with yourself. Like, you know, is running a big marketing campaign going to change it in our particular world? No, I didn't have trouble getting to people to give them my initial five second pitch, you know, and so if that's not my problem, then okay, it's this that steps to the to the other funding. So just be cautious, 
when you're doing it. Now, it's very different for a B2C or some other type of company. For a B2B company, there's no reason. You don't need a big, massive marketing spit, you know, spend and launch and all those things to kind of prove that people really want to buy what you're selling. Makes sense. And, you know, so kind of looking at that uh, time period again, um, you probably needed to like go out, raise that next round before the tipping point had really played out. And so, you know, you have the pressure of being compared to like the gold standard or you didn't triple for three years benchmarks. What was your fundraising process like? Like John has, John has given me a spoiler alert here that it was really tough. So would love to dig into that and really like help all the founders who are going to pretty much go through the same experience in the next 18 months or so of fundraising in a very a challenging environment where the standards have been raised extremely high for, you know, A, B, C rounds. Would love to hear from you kind of what your approach to fundraising in that environment was. So, yeah, the A and the B round. I think just my reputation and historical experience were fairly straightforward. So we're talking about the B2. I'll talk about why we call it a B2, the C and the D. Uh, hard would be an understatement. They were full on agony. Uh, and, you know, the B2 round kind of should have indicated to me. So I, I, and I, and now with the benefit of hindsight, I go back and look at it. Uh, I'd, I'd like to tell you that the venture world is, um, you know, everyone's really kind of looks through to the root of everything and understands and is willing to swim against the tide. But it's a momentum style business like a lot of public markets are. Uh, and we had two negative things going with this is that we, what we were doing as a service was delivered as a service. It wasn't a product company. And I think the experience in the venture industry and generally with service companies has not been great. Like it's been pretty bad. Uh, and the second part is our initial focus when I found through my iteration Small customers were the best fit, not super small, but kind of the 100 to 500 employees. And that type of investment has generally not played out well for a lot of venture investors. So even going into the pitch for the B2, the C and the D, which is, well, you're selling to small companies and you're selling a service. Okay. And then on top of that, uh, you know, the, the metrics, we hadn't grown into them yet. So we weren't experiencing that kind of growth that John alluded to that they like to see and and even though I think we were getting good traction, um, the B2, frankly, happened because I think in the end, I talked to probably 80 plus companies in the B2 round, and they all said no. I had three or four that got close, but ultimately ended up at no. Uh, one in particular, one potential venture group, it was a split. One partner wanted to do it, the other one did not. And I actually got blackballed by the other partner, as I come to find out uh, through history there. Uh, and then John and I, we both put some of our personal money in that kind of set the round. The B2 was done at the same value as the B uh, a year and a half later. So there's no increase. You arguably could call it a down round. Uh, and the way I, I don't think of it like that, I know I, other people do. We needed the money and I would have taken the money at that price, I would have taken the money even at a lower price, but we did the down round. I think with me stepping up, John stepping up on the personal side, and then we created the metrics. Uh, we were then got some of the existing investors to participate, not all of them. Um, and, and then we were able to actually, with that, able to add a few others. We added a, a, country, a company out of Europe, an atypical investor, and uh, a few others to round out the round. So we did the B2. The C was probably my lowest point in the company. 
um, at that point, I went and talked to 150 plus companies. Partly, I think now you got to remember, still got the small business, still got the delivered as a service. Now you got the failed success of the B2 or the failure of the B2 kind of hanging over you as this rain cloud. Um, and I had talked to everybody and got no's across the board. I actually went to a session with uh, John and and John, uh, I to his credit, this company would not be here without John going to the wall with a uh, who became the lead ultimately um, in the C round. And um, and I think they did as much off of John's reputation and what they're doing. And they've obviously done very well with that investment um, as a result. Yeah, they look like geniuses now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> fair. I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that John looks like the genius, so uh, as, as the piece there. But, you know, it was, I mean, just to give you how disheartening it was, I had scheduled a two-week vacation with my family to Italy, and I canceled it. Um, and the rest of my family went off to Italy on that vacation. I'm not sure my wife has forgiven me to this day for for doing that. And and it was as, it was as stressed as I think I've I've been in a long time related to work related items. Uh, but then John stepping in, I we made the pitch. Uh, they did invest. We had a few other smaller people follow along with that lead investor, um, and not a, a very very small uptick. Uh, you know the. The uh, pre-money, you know, the the valuation was right around eighty to one hundred million post the B and the B two, and we only went up to like one hundred forty million. You know, where people are used to jumping hundreds of millions, you know, even into the billions of that category. And then the D round, same thing. Now this is kind of now two thousand seventeen eighteen. Uh, I did get one particular investor, a PE firm, that wanted to invest, but um, it was a bit of. You give your soul over to them. They control everything about it. And we said no. I said no. I remember sitting in the board meeting and they're like, yeah, you can take this money, but you don't, you don't have anybody else ready to do it at this point in time. But it comes at a price and we chose not to. And we were able to stitch together around with uh, Blue Cloud and Stereo Cap. Again, not your atypical, not your typical investors. And then we got other people to follow on. Um, and then after that, it became pretty easy. Uh, I... You know, I fundraising is either ridiculously easy or ridiculously hard. I, I don't. There's usually not a middle ground uh, in these things, and it was ridiculously hard for everyone. And honestly, I was a bit surprised. People that I knew and had worked with before said no. Other folks, I had multiple firms say no more than a few times. Even as part of the D round, I had one particular firm, a very well-known firm in the valley, call me in, say no, call me back in again. And talk to them again, and they said no again, and they called me back in again. So I got, so I didn't just get one rejection in that D round. I got three from that firm uh, as they, I think, were struggling how to think about it, so and, and what to do. But you know, if you believe in it, you know, and you can, uh, you know, you kind of bet, and you got to be willing to fail also. Like at some point, you know, it's yeah, it it was a non-zero chance it could have all failed. Yeah, I I think you have so many follow-up questions. Let's see. I think first. At the question for John, like what what gave you the conviction? Because you know you, you have to decide as an investor when you have multiple companies that you know some of which are struggling, all of which need your help. You have to kind of decide, like, okay, where are you going to really, you know, do something monumentally different? And so I'm curious, what gave you the conviction to step in with Brian and and you know go to the wall, like you said. Well, it's definitely not that I was a genius, so I think we need to just make that really clear. Anybody who knows me knows that's already true. But uh, 
Yeah, honestly, it was mostly about Brian in the end. You know, back to that transparency, that that belief in, and you know, we're I'm a bit of a product nerd myself, and so I, I had done a lot of work around the space and the customer problems, and increasingly just had conviction, uh, both in Brian and the need in the marketplace, and that our solution at Arctic Wolf was actually the right one. It was just going to be a matter of time, and and you know, not being afraid of the grind. Right. And, you know, as an investor, you, you you make investments and then you it's almost like a poker game. You, you turn over some cards, you have more data and you have to decide, do you want to stay in the game and keep and keep betting? Or do you do you do you want to fold based on what you know? <clears throat> and in this case, I was really convinced that the right answer was to stay in, um, you know, maybe more than any other investment I've been a part of. And so over time, you know, it there were those nuggets of success that continue to give everyone belief. But to Brian's point, a lot of times investors don't like to acknowledge they made a mistake. So we, we did have this overhang where we had tried to pitch the story before people said no. Um, some of the other early investors, the funds, they, you know, despite being multi-stage funds, they, they weren't stepping up uh, in a meaningful way. Like there, there just were a lot of issues that, created headwind for Arctic Wolf. Um, and then when it was obvious, Brian was beating people away with a stick. I mean, just people throwing money at him like you wouldn't believe. But those three financings, they, they were lean. They were lean and, you know, scrappy years. Um, so it's just really a credit to him and the team that they they persevered. And a follow-up question for you, Brian. What, what do you think in hindsight? I think two separate questions. One, in hindsight... What, you know, what, what decisions do you feel like you made that helped you survive through that phase uh, where you might potentially be seeing other people trip up? Like, how do you survive when it's lean and you need to kind of wait for the market to meet you in terms of readiness? And then two, like, you know, what would you do differently if you had to do it again in terms of the whole fundraising process itself? Well, he had an amazing spouse. Let's just, I just want to plug <laughs> right there. That, that was the real reason that he survived. But go ahead. I know you were going to say that. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, and that is a big part of it, too, is that, you know, this, these, these come at a significant personal sacrifice, uh, you know, not, not just time, but energy and psyche and stuff like that. You know, and you, you can live through some pretty dark times where, where it just, why don't, why doesn't everybody get what I get? Like, I don't understand this. It's like, you know, what's, what's happening there. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, my, my advice is, uh, you know, for someone here is that, uh, you know, you, you, the, you know, the transparency that's required, we talked about the board level, I think also applies to your team and, uh, even at present day, we're we're very transparent as a company about how we're doing and where we're going. And and you know, I had explained to folks. Now I had a history with a lot of these early folks, so they knew me from prior lives and and know that you know I'm not sugarcoating what I'm delivering to you. Like this is okay. This is pretty dicey. It may not work. You know what's going to happen. Um, so I think that transparency. But I also think. You can't lose sight as the senior executives that you have to be able to tell a story like, like this is why it's happening. You know, this is what, you know, to give some explanation for it and explain what you're doing to try to fix it or make it better uh, and, and what you're doing. So and getting the team bought in that, 
I mean, that's in a lot of cases, that's what sustained me. You know, I saw the team members, I saw some of the early customers that we were getting success with, uh, you know, using the product and keeping with it. We still have our very first customer is still a customer. Uh, so it kind of highlights, you know, some of the value that we got there early on. So there wasn't that there was no, you know, if you're getting no response, that's a different thing than you're getting somewhat of a response and you just think that the market's not really there. And that's probably what sustained me. I believe that we were getting a response. The market just hadn't quite come into its own. And, and that if we could just be persistent and patient, that this is going to pay off in a big way. And obviously with hindsight now, we look like geniuses, but it would have been a hard time to tell you that, that I knew for sure that was going to happen, but that was my, that was my best assumption. And, you know, going back to kind of the 200 plus rejections and and those two fundraising rounds, like, do you feel like there's something you would have done differently in hindsight? I think the positioning of the company, I I overemphasize the delivered as a service um, and where I think that the venture community in general wants to see a product. And I think we could have probably emphasized that much better, especially in the B2 round or we could have made it much more of the technology and the portfolio. And, and I think we ended up making mistakes there that created the overhang that John was highlighting. So then we did fix that as we went into the C and the D, but it's too late. Like they, they have a view of it that now kind of taints what you're doing. Uh, and so that, that becomes there. Got it. So I think this goes back to your, of your comment that people are not trying to get to the root of your story. They are kind of reacting to the first five, 15 seconds. So you have to be very careful what you lead with. Moving on a little bit to kind of the board situation, like how, how you're communicating to the team, how you are uh, handling your board. I'm, I'm curious, John, like, do you have advice for other founders based on like, what was your best experience with Brian? What would you like other founders who are going through hard times in terms of scaling their company like, what is it that you need to see to give you that conviction that you had with Brian? Well, I think, I think when things aren't going well, which in every startup, there's a time when that's the case. As an investor, you want to be helpful. And, you know, one of the few, few benefits you can bring is your perspective. The reality that you've seen a lot of companies go through their ups and downs. And the truth is, you know things are probably not all going right. So if the CEO is t- isn't telling you that things aren't going right, they either don't know or they're not telling you on purpose. <laughs> and neither is good, right? And so in this case, Brian was always very open about the things he was trying and what wasn't working and what was. And that allowed us to work together on how to solve these things. Um, you know, I, I never lost belief in Brian. And sometimes I think investors fool themselves. They think they add value in all of these ways. But I, I actually think the single most important thing an investor can do is continue to give that founder a sense of belief in them, right? That we're gonna get through it. And uh, and for me, you know, that was, that was a lot easier with Brian because of just how he handled, you know, the openness right? In terms of, hey, this isn't working. This is working. He always kept us informed. Um, He treated us like partners in this. And um, I think that made a huge difference. So if I had to give any advice, it would just be, you know, that it's, it's really along those lines, you know, you know, treat, treat your investors truly like partners and the good ones, they understand that there's going to be ups and downs, but 
if you want them to help, they need to know what's going what's going sideways or wrong so that they can. I, I the thing I'd add to that openness is not simply just spewing raw data at your board members. Uh, so you 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 know part of the job is is, that, is you need to frame the problem and understand it and and put it in a way that that they the board members can add value in in what you're doing. And so I. I like to talk about like I like to bring challenges to the board when I think I have what are the different potential answers to it, uh, but I haven't made up my mind yet. So it's that's it's a little bit of an art form. So if you get too far down the line, you've already made up your mind. Then when you bring it to the board and they disagree with you, now what do you do? But if you bring it to the board when you can frame the problem, uh, it you know it's a mistake for an entrepreneur I think to to go to the board and have no idea what to do. Now if you're doing that, basically you're saying you give up. Uh, you know, what should I do now? That doesn't mean you can't go uh, to some of your investors and you just need a bit of a pep talk. Like, and, and you can do that. Just ask, say, hey, I'm really struggling right now. Give me a little bit of a pep talk. And I've done that before <laughs> with, with board members. I'm like, I don't even want to tell you about anything. I just need a little bit of a pep talk. Tell me how good I am. You know, give me some confidence uh, in what we're doing. But I, I spent a, a, a lot of energy and also just making clear that, you know, by focusing on the process, and showing the measurements and showing the data associated with that process. Can't guarantee the outcome, but I can show you all the work we're doing in the process and what we've learned along the way. And, and you can have ideas and we're open to whatever you want to do. So the, all, all those things I think are part of it. So openness is not, it doesn't forgive you not being prepared, not doing the work, not, not getting ready. Uh, it's those things, it's, it's critical for someone to understand because I think sometimes someone confuses that. It's like, well, I'm just going to dump to you my last meeting and how that felt. Okay, no, that's not, that's not value. Like frame it, help it put it in a form that people can understand. And have a plan, right, Brian? I mean, I would say that you, despite the problems, you always had a suggestion or a plan that you wanted feedback on as opposed to just venting. Um, one other thing, I'm conscious of time, Sandia, but I also wanted to say that I would often bring Brian my problems. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's nice to think about other people's problems as just a little bit of a respite. And, and so I always valued, you know, an opportunity to kind of say, hey, Brian, these other companies are struggling with these things. What do you think? And uh, it, it, anyway, it just it made it more of a two-way dynamic. I have a st story not from Arctic Wolf, but from uh, two companies ago, uh, uh, a venture investor. Um, I should probably give him credit because I, I, I quote him all the time to other entrepreneurs that come to me. Uh, John Fiber, who booked more David out, he's now retired. Uh, and we, this, not the, not Blue Coat, uh, but the company before that wasn't really playing out. Same sort of thing. And so we had a board meeting, uh, option A, B, and C. Nobody wanted C. It was clear the board wanted B, and the management team wanted A in this conversation. And, you know, after a while, you realize you're talking in circles. So we said, I called a break. I go walking down the hall with John, and he looks at me and says, I just want to be clear that if you choose option A and it doesn't work out, you're going to get fired. And first time CEO, I was a little bit taken aback. <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? Uh, and he goes, and then he, you know, that little dramatic pause, and he goes, but if you choose, you know, option B and it doesn't work out, you're going to get fired anyway. And his basic point, and I think this is something I tell entrepreneurs all the time, is, you know, because it's your industry, it's your business and what you're doing, you got to be willing to get fired. And I'm not saying you got to behave in a bad way, but you got to be willing to stand by your convictions and, and present the case uh, and do it. And I, you know, there was a, I had another situation with a very well-known uh, persona in the industry that was on my board and they had presented a plan for me 
that I categorically disagreed with. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And they ultimately resigned from the board. It was a bit of a hit for us. Uh, but those are all kind of that developing that inner strength and the conviction in your thoughts, being open-minded, but you're still the CEO. Like, like you, you know, and even if the board tells you to do X and it doesn't work out, that's still going to be your fault as the CEO. So it's, you know, I'd leave you with that advice, which is listen, but it, it's still your call and you need to live by it. Awesome. Well, on those awesome words of advice, uh, we'll, we'll wrap this episode up. Thank you so much for uh, spending time with us, Brian. And it was really lovely to see, you know, you and John, like, uh, take, take time to kind of share all these learnings from 10 years of, uh, of, of this relationship, uh, navigating, you know, the extreme rocket ship journey of, uh, of Arctic Wolf Networks. Uh, it was a real joy uh, learning about it from both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Andia. You've been listening to the Startup Field Guide with Sanghya, an unusual ventures podcast. Stay connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you liked what you heard, please rate our show and help us reach more aspiring founders with lessons on how to find product market fit. Thanks for listening. Until next time.